Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 11. We'll be discussing the Farscape episode, Till the Blood Runs Clear. I'm Kay, here with my co-host Taz. Hello. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Till the Blood Runs Clear. John and Aaron are in the Farscape module studying a star with lots of solar flares to explore the possibility of wormholes, only to create a proto-wormhole. When his ship is damaged in the experiment, he and Aaron land on the planet and are faced with a slew of bounty hunters while they wait for their ship to get fixed. Farscape does a western! I love this episode, and as tropes go, this one is so much fun. Um, so we've got two strangers who are John and Aaron passing through a desert town. There's a wanted poster, a couple of bounty hunters, they're pretending to be other people, and there's a wily shopkeeper, Furlow, who is the mechanic who is fixing the Farscape module. And then we end up with a shootout in the middle of town, and it's just wonderful, and it's just, you know, in space. <laughs> I love <laughs> Furlow, the wily shopkeeper. Oh my gosh, she's an amazing character. Isn't she? Ah, I know. I love Furlough. And I think it's because the character she plays is so often male-coded. Like, it's often like a man. You know, like the old kind of like mechanic that's like, eh, I'll get your piece, you know, your module fixed. And, um, and you know, that's like a little bit smarter than he lets on. But because it's Furlow, she's like this really cool woman who you always know, she she definitely knows what's going on, even when Aaron and John think that they're pulling things on her, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And actually, she's got this great way of, of talking about things. You know, it's that very negotiator around the subject. So you both know that you're talking about things, but you have plausible deniability that you're not talking about the thing. And the thing in this case is that John was created a proto-wormhole up in space above the planet, and she wants that info, and she knows that he did it. And it's just, the interactions are so wonderful. And I also love about her, she's not the typical character that we get to meet or that we have met so far on Farscape. She's not aggressive. She's not out to kill them. She's willing to work for, you know, fix up their module. And she's not trying to be antagonistic. And yet she knows what she wants and she's going to get it. And I just love it. I just love her so much. You're right about her not being like a typical Farscape character. And I think in that way, she actually is a typical Farscape character because Farscape does this thing really well where it takes tropes or it takes character archetypes and it just like rebuilds them from the ground up, you know, and it makes them really mm -hmm. fun again. And it makes them really, it just is enjoyable television to watch. Yeah. I want to play a clip of Furlough where she's trying to explain what there is to see in the town. And it's just so typically her. Oh, I love Furlough. Let's play it. How much longer is this going to take? Twice as blotching long as if you weren't here. Why don't you go for a nice little walk outside? Take in some of the sights. What sights? Well, if you go straight out that way, there's a truly outstanding expanse of sand. Sand, eh? Just as much as you could want. There are plenty of things I want at the moment. Sand isn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hilarious because they're on a desert planet. Like, the entire planet is covered in sand. <laughs> and she's just like, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and then she's like, get out of my hair and I'll fix your ship. But you got, like, it's just so her and I love it. Frilo is just so fun to watch because it's like a different version of Rigel. It's like Rigel if Rigel actually had abilities to do things. Mm -hmm. 
Like if Rigel actually had a skill that he could sell, yeah. he would be furlough. <laughs> <laughs> We've mentioned already there John and Aaron were out flying in the module and they created proto wormhole because it's the exact conditions, you know, there's there's solar flares coming from the local star. And John, without telling Aaron, decides to try the slingshot maneuver to create this wormhole. The character note we get for John at the beginning of this episode is he's really desperately trying to get home and create a wormhole back to Earth. But he's so selfish about it. And it's, it's, he's basically does not ask Aaron at all if she wants to be doing this experiment with him that he just kind of launches mm-hmm. them into without telling her. And meanwhile, back on Moya, you have Dargo super pissed off because he just wants to leave the stupid planet and get on their way and not have to be there anymore. And John will not listen to him at all. And so there's this huge friction that's built up between John and Dargo at the beginning that plays itself out through this whole episode. It's really, really a huge episode for the two of them and their relationship. Let's actually play the quote. Yeah. Because it's funny, but also because it does a really good job of setting up that kind of duality. I forbid this. You know what, Dargo? Sometimes you're a real pain in the ass. Crichton. Crichton. Pilot, reestablish contact. I can't. The solar activity has reduced the range of the comms. What is a pain in the ass? Human speak, I believe, for someone irritating, stubborn, obnoxious. A simpleton. Adult? Idiot? I get the idea. Moron. (laughs) And Dargo is getting no sympathy from Zan or Rigel because they have to put up with him too. (laughs) And they are completely in agreement with John that Dargo is in fact a pain in the ass when he gets all bossy like that. I love how Rigel is feeding into, like, Rigel is using it as an excuse to call Dargo names. And he's just (laughs) winding Dargo up. He wants to see Dargo's head pop off. (laughs) Yes. And it works. Dargo gets so pissed that eventually he makes it down to the planet. So the main conflict in this episode is that John and Aaron are down on this planet. And they discover that there's a wanted beacon out for them. And it very much is an old West seeing yourself in a wanted poster. This one's a hologram, though. It's, it's, it gives it the sci-fi feel. Yeah, because it's sci-fi. But it's like Flynn Rider seeing himself on the wanted poster and being like, my nose isn't that big. you know. <laughs> and what's interesting about the the wanted poster, though, is that Aaron and John are not technically on it. Aaron realizes very early on why, and it's because Kreis wants John for himself. He doesn't want the possibility of anybody else even remotely killing John. And Aaron, because Kreis has sent her a secret message. And it's really great that she figures this out too. Our, our non-tech savvy Aaron son is extremely tech savvy in this in this little byplay where she spends, she kind of sits in the background while two bounty hunters come up and John is interacting with them. And so while they're talking, she is fiddling with this beacon and actually figuring out what the, how to access the secret message on it that's just for her from Grace. Mm-hmm. And it's just really this great little, I think it's this really great character note that she, is, she has come such a long way of disdaining anything tech-like to actually figure it out to make it work so she can see this message. Mm-hmm. So she hears what Grace has to offer and um, it's an interesting moment, and I want to listen to it 
because we can hear explicitly what Chris is offering her because this is a private message to her. This isn't on the public bounty. She had to like really fiddle with it to get the message. Grace is sending you love letters? I suspected as much. You have committed numerous acts of treason. You cannot hope to avoid us forever. You will be captured, you will face trial and punishment. Your one hope of avoiding this fate is to accept my conditional amnesty. Abandon the human criminal. Return of the Leviathan. Surrender Cardago, Pauzartuzan, and Dominar of Rigel 16. Comply, and you will retire. Honorably, with your commission fully restored. You have my oath as a peacekeeper. Yeah, well, we know what that's worth. Come on. Let's light a fire under furlough so we can ditch these dogs before the flares go entirely. Hey, you're not taking him seriously. I always take him seriously. I think that's a good note for Aaron and for Grace, where she says, I always take him seriously. Because I think that to a certain extent, John still kind of sees Grace as like this larger than life villain. And he's like, ah, oh, you can't take him seriously. You know, like, yeah, I think he kind of sees Grace as this <sighs> joke. Megalomaniac. Yeah. 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 Well, an interesting note about, about John saying you can't trust him is because from the old black magic, there's actually a point where he almost comes to a truce or what he thinks is a truce with Crace, and then Crace goes back on his word. Mm -hmm. And so he's actually had Crace actively betray him by saying, oh yeah, sure, we'll be a truce, we'll join up and force it, join forces and fight Maldus, and then basically use it to get close to Crichton and try to kill him. Mm -hmm. So I think there, that distrust is, is definitely born of something that he's gone through and, and his experience with Crace and in that episode but yeah there's also he's he still sees because of that and as you said the larger in life factors like he's this ghost on the horizon kind of villain for john and he doesn't know Crace. he hasn't really talked to him much beyond accusations in that one fight mm -hmm. in the audio you can kind of hear it but the visual is very clear when aaron turns to john and is like i always take him seriously it's a very telling moment for her because this is her old commanding officer I, I think that she probably had several people between her and Crace but essentially it would be you know like a, a seal commando and mm -hmm. the general of the army oh yeah you know well and also and also Crace is like the absolute law of authority on the command carrier this command carrier mm -hmm. that she grew up on mm -hmm. I mean the captain is in charge of the destiny of every single person on that ship. And I think she all, she recognizes that on a personal level, but also on the fact that the command carrier in and of, a, in and of itself is a force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole, all this power that Crace holds because of that. Yeah. Do you think that Aaron in this episode has a different aching for peacekeeper net, for peacekeeper life than she did in PK Tech Girl? Or do you think it's still her working through never not being able to get her own life back the way it's framed in the episode i think it's more of a longing to go to a home again because mm -hmm. going home is the, the kind of the theme that we have here with with juxtaposing john trying to create this wormhole and 
and her not having a home to go to, even though at one point John says, you know, you could still come with me. That offer's still open, which is a callback to DNA Mad Scientist again. Mm -hmm. So I think I think she's kind of moved move beyond wanting specifically the peacekeeper life necessarily mm -hmm. like i don't think she wouldn't take it in a heartbeat if she could get it mm -hmm. i don't know it's hard it's hard to tell in this episode how far along that spectrum she is mm -hmm. i guess i'm thinking about dargo in the last episode and her conversation with him when she says you know i would never turn you into the peacekeepers or your son into the peacekeepers and that's definitely a shift for her and she's slowly been eroding, you know, all the things that she swore she would protect as a peacekeeper. Mm -hmm. You know, all that's been slowly eroding this entire season so far. Yeah, I think that the way she talks about Crace's offer and the way she views Crace's offer, it's a lot more dreamy than the way she was looking at, Jel you know, at Jelena and kind of like, you get to go back home, I get to stay here. I don't know, because I think that with Jelena, it was more jealous, not, yeah, with Jelena, it really was more jealousy. And here, this is just her realizing that it's a fantasy. Yeah, I like I like the way you frame that. Like, because this is definitely the fantasy of going home, as she says. I always take him seriously. Whereas in PK Tech Girl, she's like realizing that she's shut out from this thing that she still really wants. Yeah, because she sees Jelena being able to have it. Yeah, and then I think there there also was in PK Tech Girl the shattering of a lot of illusions, the same way that John. Yeah that John's illusions were shattered in um, Old Black Magic when he was like, oh, if I talk to Chris, I won't actually be able to convince him of anything. And then here Aaron was like, oh, even if I went back, I wouldn't have my life back <laughs> because my entire unit needs to kill me in order to get re-promoted. Right. And even here at the end when she, when she explains to John that you know, that offer of retirement isn't actually an offer of retirement. It's a death sentence. Yeah. It's just a, it's a nicer death sentence that she would have otherwise, perhaps. Let's actually listen to that. Chris's offer of amnesty, you're not seriously considering it, are you? You don't think he'd keep his word, do you? I believe he would restore my commission and give me honorable retirement. What he means by honorable retirement is a radiation-induced brain fever to bring on the living death. Well, if you knew the offer was bogus, why did you even listen to it? Because it was nice, just for a moment, to believe it was genuine. That I could go back. So there again, this acknowledgement that it's a fantasy of hers to go back to the peacekeepers, but that she can never do it mm -hmm. in reality. Yeah. And it's, I think, her admitting a weakness that she wouldn't have a few episodes ago, because it is a weakness to kind of have that fantasy and to have that moment where you get to pretend something that is just fundamentally mm -hmm. untrue, especially in their life where so much of their life is pain and suffering and running and panic. Which actually brings us back to the bounty hunters. So, oh, let's please talk about the bounty hunters. Oh, I, I love know, them. right? <laughs> so, the bounty hunters being dressed up in kind of a Native American garb. Problematic? Yes or no? <laughs> uh, probably problematic, but at the same time, it's not something I particularly noticed. So, I don't know what that says about me and my observational skills. But that that theme, once you mentioned it 
you know, that fits back into the whole Western theme, I guess. Oh, yeah, actually. A little bit of fringe. Yes. So our two bounty hunters are Rorg and... I'm forgetting the one females. Anyway, no, male and female. It's, the man is like Rorf because it's like Worf but with an R. And the woman is Rorg. Oh, Rorf and Rorg. Okay, yeah. thank you. <laughs> because I was literally yeah. like, I was watching it with subtitles on and I'm like, oh, it's Worf. I'm like, that's hilarious. <laughs> and John even says that. He says Worf when they're introduced and the other in the bounty hunter is really insulted that he got his name wrong but it's you know classic cult classic trek reference right there so we have rorf and rorg which are going to be difficult for me to say you can just I say like the male and the female bounty hunter <laughs> the male and the female so it's a male and a female pair and they're they're not the brightest so they're at the wanted beacon and Aaron tells John, okay, I'm going to handle this because clearly these are aggressive people. I'm the person that's aggressive on our team and I'm going to handle it. But she immediately gets shot down because, because John doesn't say she is his female. And it's this whole gender dynamic that happens in the, with between them two because the bounty hunters, their species organizes along male-female roles, mm -hmm. which then John immediately picks up on. He picks up on it pretty quick. And immediately gets in the other male's face and is like, you back off and acting all posture and, and, and very dominant male behavior. And that's how he kind of gets control of the situation and gets them out of the, the predicament they're in, which they're not on the water and begin. So the bounty hunters don't know who they are. So they pose as two bounty hunters, Butch and Sundance. <laughs> another great Western reference right here. But we know where we are. Um, and they pose as competing bounty hunters. Mm -hmm. It's I don't know. They're just playing a role. And that's what makes this episode so fun and this whole thing so fun is they're like on the edge of discovery the entire time. Mm -hmm. I think what makes it a lot of fun also is we see John kind of performing this maleness. It's very, it, it's very performative um, where he is playing John Wayne, you know, but not even really John Wayne because the character he's playing is even more alpha- than John yeah. Wayne is like, hey, you, you know, it's super, super like campy, 10 cent Western. Yeah. And so he kind of asserts his dominance over the two bounty hunters. And they actually have <laughs> just kind of to show that like these are good bounty hunters in the sense that they're blood trackers. And even without ever having picked up the scent of any of the people on the ship, they were able to smell Zan and Dargo when they both respectively came down to the planet, but they're not the brightest. And I want to play a short little clip that shows John performing his alpha John Wayne and the bounty hunters being bad at math. You help me capture the prisoners and I'll split the bounty, 70-30. So right there, you see that um, that John is is this character, and that the bounty hunters, while they're really good at something, there is a reason that they are not picking up that John and Aaron are also a part of the Moya crew, <laughs> and that is just because <laughs> they can't even figure out rate, they can't even figure out percentages. <laughs> and there's over and over again, you see them getting angry and sticking their gun in 
in John's face and he just stares them down and, and plays the very calm action hero, get that gun out of my face kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. And it really is a performance too. It's, it's, there's a marked difference between how he behaves normally and being the alpha dog that he is playing right here, right here. Mm -hmm. And it's really apparent when uh, Dargo comes down. So Dargo comes down to the planet after Aaron and John to forcibly take them back to Moya because he's mad at John for basically hanging up the phone on him. <laughs> so he gets caught by the, the blood trackers. He actually falls into a neat little ambush that they set up with Worf as bait, and then the Rorg, the female, comes up behind him, and they capture him. And so then you see, start to see John's facade crack, because Worf wants to have John there to torture Dargo for information with them. And he doesn't want to hurt Dargo. He's clearly uncomfortable with what's going on you see the cracks in his performance that are happening and he almost gives the game away i mm -hmm. mean Worf notices i mean our not so clever blood trackers they notice mm -hmm. and how it plays out is uh and why we have the title of this episode is the bounty hunters cut one of dargo's tentacles on his head not quite sure what they're called but one of the tentacles and he starts to bleed and john you know clearly doesn't want him hurt or anything it's like, you know, you can't hurt him. We can't let him die. His blood needs to run clear. Mm -hmm. And so the way he proves that he's really doesn't care about Dargo as a person and he calls him a piece of meat is he squeezes the tentacle while whispering really threatening things in his ear to get the blood to flow clear. Mm -hmm. So it's very painful for Dargo. It looks painful. He's performing again and he recovers. And at the same time, he's saving Dargo. Yeah. And what's interesting is kind of what happens after because... Dargo immediately, when he sees Crichton, he's like, Crichton! And he's like really mad. And I think he does think that John betrayed him, which is honestly a very weird thing to think because I'm like, you're the only person in this galaxy that John knows. Why would he betray you? And so John has to cover and be like, oh, it's, you know, Sundance Crichton. Or wait, is he Butch? He's Butch. Yeah. So it was like, he's Butch. Butch Crichton. Butch Crichton. Yeah. But you, but you know, for, for Dargo, though, Dargo is a very straight line thinker. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think of some of the other things, like when Rigel was cornered in Exodus from Genesis and said, you know, like, I shouldn't move. And Dog was like, then don't move. So he's, he's, he thinks in these very straight lines about things. Yeah. You're either on my side or you're not. I mean, we see that over and over again. He doesn't do well with thinking around. Yeah, thinking complicated things. Why is somebody behaving like this? Yeah. He, he takes it at face value. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely see that, that, that Dargo is, like, very much straightforward. And that's why he struggles with with playing a part in PK Tech Girl. Like, he struggles with the lying part, and Zan has mm -hmm. to, like, feed him his lines. <laughs> <laughs> but so, when Dargo wakes up, and the other two blood trackers have gone away to go catch Zan, who has now come down to the planet, and Dargo actually gets free... And then he confronts John, and they have a very interesting conversation because John, as soon as he is with Dargo, drops the performance. We kind of see the kind of male that John is, like how J John's actual maleness versus his performative maleness. So let's play that clip. Yes. I just wanted to go home, with no matter to the cost of the rest of us. What? Oh, you right, remind me. Who jumped off pilot's arm to get a return ticket? Ah! Huh? No, it wasn't me. I was too busy saving your ass. Too busy keeping your deepest family secrets. Shall I chronicle the rest of that relationship? Relationship? 
Oh, we have a relationship. No wonder you want to kill me. I once thought. Thought what? No, 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 no. You know, thank me tomorrow. I saved your ass today. You tortured me. I saved you. You know what? I have no idea what goes on in that tiny little brain of yours, Dargo. I have no idea why you do anything that you do. Catch a clue, pal, because I'm tired of sticking my hand at only to have you snap at it. Every time I let down my guard, you disappoint me. Sorry. I'm only human. One thing you can't hear in the audio about this scene is that as performing his, his masculine superiority and macho-ness, John is very like, solid and in your face and not flinching at all. But here he is running from Dargo this whole scene. He's running behind columns. Some of the bangs you hear in that clip are Dargo kicking things and just walking right through objects in his path, whereas John is dodging around. And eventually he basically climbs a tree. He climbs a ladder in this like warehouse they're in. And this conversation happens while John is 10 feet in the air where Dargo cannot reach him unless he shoots him with his Qualta blade in the rifle mode. And the difference here is that Dargo actually is the alpha between the two of them in the strictest sense that we're observing with the with how John is playing the alpha to the bloodhounds. And here he's very much the non-aggressive, you know, I keep reaching out my hand to you, I keep trying to make peace with you kind of attitude that John has to it while he is physically the lesser of the two of them. Yeah. And I think that John and Dargo's relationship, it it always circles back to conflict for some reason. Like every time it seems that they reach a good plateau in their relationship, it kind of circles back to conflict. Um, because even in the last episode, we saw John and Dargo kind of, you know, after John helped stage the intervention and he and Dargo really shared this moment. And then in this episode, it circles back to conflict. And we've seen that just over and over and over again in their relationship. And I think at the end of this conversation, they end up realizing that they're not going to be friends, that that's just impossible for them right now. So they settle on comrades, because that's, I think, something Dargo can, can live with. He can't see John as a friend just because they're too fundamentally different. Like, John, is, John isn't an alpha. And I wouldn't say that John is like a, you know, a beta or anything like that. You know, but he's <laughs> That's getting a little bit too in the truth of the terminology. Yeah, that doesn't, really... doesn't actually track into humanness. But yeah, John doesn't perform his own masculinity in the same way that Dargo does. Yeah, and they also, well, the way they approach problems and the way they approach, you know, their viewpoint is very different because John, well, let's go back to the stereotypes. John is a scientist mm -hmm. and he thinks about problems. He thinks through problems. He wants to find a peaceful resolution that everyone can agree with. He's a bit more of the, you know, the touchy-feely side, whereas Dargo is okay. There's a problem. I'm going to shoot it. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what the problem is. He's going to shoot it. You know, they say it in that conversation. They don't understand how the other one thinks, mm -hmm. and that's where the sources of conflict keep coming from. Is because they can't be in each other's shoes. They don't know how to think in the way the other person thinks. Mm -hmm. And I, but I think once they do come to that meeting of okay, we're comrades. They ha they have a a pretty smooth relationship after that where yeah. they meet, they go out and the blood trackers come back and they're like, oh, you betrayed us. And John tries to play it off as like, oh, I'm a, for you know, I'm a soldier of fortune. <laughs> you know, I do what I want. And it, um, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work very well. And then we get our shootout. 
Oh my God. The scenery in this scene is so funny because they're hiding behind an espresso machine. I was like, I was like, what? It's actually, it's flat out. Like somebody went to craft services and was like, we need to borrow this. And they like plop the espresso machine down. And that's what they're hiding behind. It's amazing. And Dargo knocks all the cups over, over to the side. Yeah. Oh my God. And then we get our fabulous, fabulous shootout in the middle of the town square. Where they're hiding behind different things. Yeah. Which actually brings us back to Aaron, who then saves the day by faking a recording that makes it seem like that makes it seem like Crace is leaving, so that the you know, the bounties would be essentially worthless. Earlier in the episode, while John was dealing with Jargo and with the two bounty hunters, Aaron had discovered another bounty hunter. Uh, who was trying to do something to John's Farscape module, and in the fight, she got blinded because she saw a solar flare with her bare eyes without using the goggles. Oh my god, the goggles are hysterical. The goggles are so good. And I love that Furla tries to charge them for the goggles. It's so <laughs> it's such a rigid thing to do. You charge us for the goggles? <laughs> anyway. I'll throw them in for free. She gets she gets temporarily blinded. Yeah, let's play the quote where she and John are talking about it. And as a side note, there's Furlough being hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> You can't see. Don't worry, it's, a, it's only temporary. Probably. Sure. 60% chance you're recovering. 70. 80 even. Aaron, how did this happen? Another bounty hunter showed up. Another one? She uh, caught a solar flare in the face. She was taking him out. Don't help me, Crichton. You can't look after yourself. Not right now. So stop acting like a badass peacekeeper. Ex-peacekeeper, actually. I know. Yeah, Aaron doesn't do well with being disabled. Yeah, but ironically, Aaron is not only the one who saves the day, but she's flat out the most badass in this episode. Because you have Aaron, who, while blind, figures out that the only way to outsmart the bloodhounds is to actually outsmart them because they're not terribly bright. That they're not going to be able to, like, outshoot them. And they're not going to be able to outkill them. <laughs> the only way is just to outsmart them. <laughs> she and Furlo make a little plan where what they do is they take the beacon that already exists and they make it look like Crace is leaving. And then as soon as Crace is leaving, the bounty hunters essentially say, well, it's not worth it to shoot and kill Crichton and Dargo for food. So we're just going to leave. So they end up just leaving. And it kind of does go back to to Aaron and John's relationship throughout this episode because when she doesn't want help for him, it's at the tail end of this kind of long discussion that they've been having on and off about John's selfishness. Mm -hmm. Because at the beginning of the episode, he almost takes her with him into a wormhole. Yeah, let me play that one because that one's really good. You're with me on this, right? Oh, now it occurs to you to ask. You look, sorry, okay? got a little caught up. I thought we were just going to collect some data. I had no idea that we'd actually start a wormhole. Well, we did, and you were ready to jump right into it. No. No, I was not. I could see it wasn't stable. What if it had been? What if it was stable? What would you have done then? Flown straight into it without knowing where you'd come out the other side, and you were taking me with you. Next time, Crichton, you can fly solo. Fine, Aaron. Next time, I will. But right now, we have to get the module fixed. No, actually, you need to. Okay, I need to. 
need your help. As usual. John Crichton, selfish bastard. Total jerk at the beginning of this episode. Yeah, and it's... It's interesting to see because in the past we have seen the rest of them as as people who would who would do a lot to get home. Who would kill Moya, who would cut off Pilot's arm. They would do a lot to survive. John even brings that up in his fight with Dargo, pointing it out. Like, you guys went to extremes too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the first time that we've seen John have have a real chance at going home. Yeah. Like, I, I think he is selfish, but this is also the first time that he has been confronted with the opportunity to go home. Right, right. And he leaps at it. Mm-hmm. And he's collected this data that he wants to then use to figure out how to create create wormholes. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to this episode, folks, because it becomes real important later on. Mm-hmm. But the wormhole data becomes an obsession for him. And th- in this episode, it's like the first baby steps into figuring out how the universe is put together, how he can travel and how other people can use it. Because furlough, ultimately what she wants, is also that wormhole data. Um, I'm going to play the, from the last bit of the episode where the bill has come due to furlough for fixing up, up the module. I can't pay this. And we have a problem. Unless, of course, there's uh, something else of value you have to offer. And I don't mean your charming smile. You know, the ability to create a stable wormhole travels through space and time would be incredibly... Profitable. Probably. Deal. I'll download you a copy of the data as soon as I get back aboard the ship. Exclusive rights, or there's no deal. What? No. No, that, that, that data may be my only ticket home. Well, of course, you're welcome to stay here and be part of an exciting experiment. I can't stay here for a while. I gotta keep moving. There's probably half a dozen bounty hunters on the way here right now. Well, then you really have a problem. And I think that goes back to how much we both like Furlough because she didn't, John didn't tell her that he was building wormholes. She actually saw it on his ship and she kept trying to buy the ship from him. Uh, without telling him that she knew that he was making wormholes. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's, I think she's just an interesting character. I think she's a really smart character and she's fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She even tells him at one point that such a handsome man shouldn't be driving around in crap like that. (laughs) (laughs) Again, kind of playing to the whole theme of masculinity that's going through this, this whole episode. Yeah. Yeah, because with her, he's not performing that butch character. He's just being himself, which, you know, and she is performing a character that is, you know, has more masculine performative traits. You know, she, Mm -hmm. you know, she is also an engineer like him, but she's more of the mechanic side, which is coded as male in, in, you know, American society. And, you know, she kind of has that, that grungy look and she kind of calls him pretty and, you know, even with Aaron, there's kind of this like, I think she and Aaron are kind of, she and Aaron just have some really fun moments this episode. Yeah. Yeah, they really do. Um, we don't see much of Zan or Rigel this episode. Zan is off having photogasms. Photogasms. <laughs> yeah. That, that's one of, that's a really great way to sideline a character, I gotta say. Yeah. You just, you just basically have them 
in their bunk, shall we say, or actually on the <laughs> terrace, buck naked while she absorbs the ionic solar flares. Because the radi- ionic radiation is what she craves. And it's really hilarious. It's really good. Yeah. I don't think I have much more for this episode. It was a pretty straightforward episode. Yeah. I, I like it a lot. I think it's a lot of fun. What would you rate it? I would give it, I don't know. I would give it a solid 3.5. You know, maybe even a four. Yeah, I'd probably put it up in the four range just because I love all the relationship conversations. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, John Crichton, white shirt watch. What is he wearing this episode? He is wearing the gray shirt and the black pants that he had last episode. Also, some really sexy hot goggles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they get to protect their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> he and Aaron look really hilarious together in those. I know, it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Aaron is... Erin is wearing her really cool, kind of prototypical Erin outfit. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is wearing their normal outfit. Except for Zan, who takes her clothes off several times. Except for Zan, who's <laughs> naked. And also, <laughs> Furlough is, like, wearing the coolest hat ever. I don't even understand. <laughs> it's, like, non-functional as a hat. It's like a helmet. I love Furlough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. The next episode is The Flax. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Bottle episode. Things get interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will see you next week. If you liked the episode, feel free to review us on iTunes. We'll see you then.